Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the John Campia Podcast, episode number 41 for Monday, September the 5th, 2016. I am, of course, your host, John Campia. And uh, welcome back to the show, guys. We've been away for a little while now. Um, as many of you know, the last couple of weeks for me have been very, let's say, unusual and uh, busy and tragic all at the same time. Um, busy in the sense that I've been going really crazy and hectic, trying to keep everything floating with Film HQ, which is going amazing, by the way, but also gearing up to come back and make my return to Movie Talk, which we announced last week. But most importantly, um, as I let you guys know uh, a week or two ago, uh, my father-in-law passed away recently, Anne's dad. And um, it's it's just been uh, not only dealing with that with the family has been very difficult, but also then you know we had to wait about a week and a half or two weeks for the memorial services and you know and then the funeral and you know all that's been going on and obviously that stuff has taken priority over the podcast and I really appreciate the patience you guys have shown. Um, but now we are back uh, with the John Campy podcast. Going to be making a little bit of a change in the John Campia podcast schedule. I'm going to be talking about that in just a, a second here. Um, but first, I wanted to talk about this. Last night, for the fourth year in a row, not counting last year because he didn't actually do a concert at the Hollywood Bowl last year, but for the fourth consecutive year that he's been doing it, um, Ann and I went down to the Hollywood Bowl, which, by the way, if you ever have the opportunity to attend a concert at the Hollywood Bowl, I would highly recommend it. It is an amazing venue to go and uh, and watch a concert. It's a great time. And uh, Ann and I got to go and watch John Williams, the legendary composer, uh, not just of Star Wars, but of Superman and Indiana Jones and Jaws and Harry Potter and you name you name the iconic Hollywood score. Chances are. John Williams did it. And so, you know, the concert was called uh, John Williams, the maestro of the movies. And it was just an incredible show last night. Not only, you know, to, to be there at the Hollywood Bowl and not only to see John Williams, but also John Williams is a terrific storyteller too. I have appreciated that over the years that we've been going to his concerts is listening to John Williams in between pieces of music, he'll stop and talk to the audience for a bit and tell stories. And for instance, last night, he told a story that I had never heard. And now there might be some diehard Star Wars fans out there that did hear this before, but I did not hear this story before. At least I don't recall hearing this story before. But last night he was uh, getting ready to play uh, Princess Leia's theme. And he told this story before and he says, look, like everybody else, when we made Star Wars, I didn't know Luke and Leia were brother and sister. He said, George never told me that. He said, so when I first composed Leia's theme, I actually composed it as a love theme for Luke and Leia. It was a Luke and Leia love theme that I was composing. And he went on to talk about how now, in hindsight, that was horribly inappropriate, you know, which was really fun. And the audience loved the way he told stories. But the way he tells stories, not just of Star Wars, but... We forget he's been like the preeminent film composer for 30, 40 years. And to hear him tell stories, not just about Star Wars, although obviously I am most interested in his Star Wars stories, but to hear him tell stories of old Hollywood and to hear him tell stories of the other old great composers. 
You know, he told this great story last night about how, you know, he kind of protegeed under the great Alfred Newman and how he and his wife were invited over to Alfred Newman's house one time because he was playing in Alfred Newman's um, orchestra for a while. And he got to meet Alfred's son, David Newman. And then last night, David Newman was one of the composers as well of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, which was doing the concert with John Williams. Just, it was awesome. I had such a great time. If you ever get the chance to go and listen to John Williams, because the dude's 84, 85 years old now. Who knows how much longer he's going to be touring and performing like this. But if you get the chance, do whatever it is you need to do. You don't need to be a Star Wars fan. You just got to be a movie fan. Go. You know what's funny too is, Anne mentioned this during the performance last night. She was saying, you know what's really funny? It's like if you close your eyes for a second, this orchestra is playing so perfectly, you'd think you were listening to a soundtrack. Like if if you didn't know any better and you just close your eyes, you would think for a second that we were not at a live concert. You'd think they were just piping in a CD through the speakers. That's how beautifully they played. So I highly recommend you get out there and uh, check them out if you get a chance. Um, so, hey, now let's get on to my new schedule. As, as most of you now know, I am returning to Collider Movie Talk. Now, let me just restate what I have said on other things already, just to be really clear here. I am not returning to Collider to take over Collider Video again. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Number one, they don't need me to. Number two, I don't have the time to do it. Because I have other projects, much like Film HQ, that is going extremely well and is really successful right now. We're still the number one show on the network on Comic-Con HQ, and that's just been amazing so far. But I also have other projects that I'm working on that I'm not allowed to talk about. I've signed little you know, non-disclosure agreements I can't talk about. I, I'm working on things even Dennis doesn't know about, <laughs> right? So, um, so I just don't have the time. I am strictly coming back to take over movie talk. And I'm excited about it. And, you know, a lot of people would say, well, why are you coming back to take over Movie Talk? Well, because they asked. Um, so, and, you know, the, the job the job of running Collider Video, I mentioned this in a Facebook Q&A the other day. The job of running Collider Video has gotten bigger since I left. Because since I left, they've added like four or five new shows. So what we're doing is, and now obviously Movie Talk is the most important piece of the Collider Video puzzle, but the Collider Video puzzle is many, 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 many pieces. Even if Movie Talk is the biggest and maybe most significant one, there are still tons of pieces. And so what we've done is Dennis, who has done a terrific job since I handed him the job like six months ago, Dennis has done an incredible job job running Collider Video. He is going to continue running all of Collider Video other than Movie Talk. So I'm going to give direct supervision and oversight and leadership to Movie Talk. Dennis is going to oversee and run the 15 other elements of Collider Video. So Dennis is still the head of Collider Video. He's running all the other stuff except for Movie Talk. So Dennis is still overseeing Heroes, Jedi Council, Top 10, Nightmares, uh, Best of, um, like all the other shows. Mailbag, Dennis is overseeing, giving direct supervision and leadership to all that. I'm just going to do Movie Talk. So I just wanted to be really, really clear on that. Uh, And I'm excited to come back and do it. I think it's going to be fun. The fact that it's only Movie Talk means I'm I have the time, at least a little bit, I have the time to do it, and I'm very stoked about it and very excited. Now, what that is going to mean, though, is, you know, prior to my father-in-law passing away, I was trying to do three episodes of my podcast a week. 
that's simply not going to be possible anymore. So from now on, the John Campy podcast is going to continue, but it's only going to be once a week. It's going to be Mondays. So new episodes of the John Campy podcast will air on Mondays. Uh, unfortunately, I just don't have the time to do it multiple episodes a week. So it's going to be Mondays for the John Campia podcast. And I hope that still works for you guys. I'm excited to do it. You know, this podcast is just a hobby of mine. I don't make money doing this podcast. Like this isn't part of my job. This is just a fun hobby. I enjoy just getting in front of a microphone without cameras on me um, and taking, interacting and taking your emails that you guys send in to me. And that's what I'm going to do now for the rest of this episode. I'm just going to take your guys' emails that you guys have sent in. How do you get one of your questions on the John Campia podcast? It's very simple. You just email me at thejohncampiapodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's thejohncampiapodcast at gmail.com. Every question I'm about to read right now was sent into thejohncampiapodcast at gmail.com, and that's how you can maybe get yours on this show as well. So... Got a few things to talk about today, uh, and we're going to talk, first of all, I'm going to take this one because, you know, I don't address this very much, but I figured it's got to be addressed at least once. So here's the question. The question comes from Philip D'Agostino, and Philip D'Agostino writes, hey, John, really excited you're making your triumphant return to movie talk this week. Well, thank you very much, Philip. But as a longtime fan, I have to ask. Why do you keep leaving and returning? Isn't this like the third time? Are you sticking around this time? I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I just really needed to ask. All right. Thanks a lot for the question, Philip. And, and fair enough. And you know, it's funny in the comments I get both on Twitter and on YouTube. And, and when I, we announced my return to movie talk, you know, in the midst of all the amazing support that you guys sent in, there were a number of comments, understandably so. From people writing and saying, is, you know, Campia should make up his mind. He comes, he goes, he comes, he goes. Okay. I just wanted to set the record straight on this. Okay. I want to be very, very clear and do me a favor. All you filthy people, um, all my filthies out there, do me a favor. If you hear people asking the question, why does John keep coming and going, keep coming, and going, please refer them to this point in this podcast. All right. Or, or set them straight, set other people straight. If you see this comment left, it would help me out a great deal. But here is the, this is the, the, the bottom line. This is the setting the record straight on this question. Okay. The reality is I only ever left movie talk once. Now, whether movie talk was under AMC or whether it was under Collider, I only ever truly left once. And that was six months ago. That's the only time I truly left. Now, it is true that I tried to leave a little over a year ago. I guess it's been longer than a year ago now, but it is true a year and a half ago. I tried to leave like a year, year and a half ago when it was still under AMC. I tried to leave, but here's what happened. I tried to leave um, AMC Movie Talk at the time. It was called AMC at the time because we were still working with uh, AMC, wonderful company. I love that company. I love the movie theater chain. And what had happened was there were some other things involved as well. But, you know, I did have a lot of, I had been doing Movie Talk for a long time. And I had been looking forward to trying new things. 
And I felt at the time, this is back when it was still at AMC. I felt at the time that, hey, everything's in good enough shape that I can leave and Dennis is going to be able, I was going to leave it to Dennis and Dennis is going to be able to carry on this thing and everything's going to be great. So I announced that I was leaving, fully expecting that everything was going to be fine. The problem is that after I had left AMC Movie Talk, I found out that AMC then later decided, and I think they were very wrong. I respect them a great deal, but I just, I disagreed with them on this. I felt they made a mistake. AMC had decided that AMC Movie News, AMC Movie Talk could not function without me there. I disagree with them. I thought it could have functioned just fine. However, they made the decision that they didn't feel that, and that was within their prerogative to decide this because they were paying the bills. AMC decided after I left that they, that AMC Movie Talk could not continue without me there. Now, they didn't make this decision right away. It took them a few weeks. And when I found, and by that point, I was already getting ready to make my next move. I had been talking and taking interviews with people and, and trying and taking meetings with people. And I had pretty much decided what I was going to do next. And then the, the leadership at AMC let me know, because I stayed close with them, that they decided they were going to shut AMC Movie News down. That means no more movie talk. That means everybody that I had spent years developing was going to lose their jobs. Everybody was losing their jobs at AMC Movie News. Uh, and movie talk was going to shut down permanently and all that kind of stuff. It was because of that that the only option that I had, and remember, I had already left. The only option I had left and, and available to me to A, save everybody's jobs, and B, keep movie talk going, was to bring the whole operation with me over to Collider. Um, I had made a deal already in principle with Complex Media, that Complex Media is the company that owns Collider. I had already made a deal as an individual that I was now going to move to Complex and start doing some stuff there. However, when I found out that AMC was going to shut down Movie Talk and everybody was going to lose their gigs, I talked to the people at AMC and I talked to the people at Complex and said, hey, what if, I, what if we change plans here? What if instead of doing what we were going to do, what if we take this whole operation, this AMC movie news operation, and we lift it all up and we bring it all over to Collider? And what if we do it that way? And fortunately, AMC had great leadership that saw some real advantages to that. And Complex has some amazingly smart, great leadership at Complex who saw the benefits of that. So you see, while I tried to leave movie talk, at one point a year or a year and a half ago, I wasn't actually able to do it. And I mean, I guess I did kind of leave, but I didn't go back to it. It came back to me. It was the only choice I had. And I don't regret the choice. I think it's great. I thought, I think it was wonderful, but I tried to leave, but in doing so, movie talk was going to be shut down. Everybody was going to lose their jobs. The only thing I could do was to then bring it with me over to Collider and we started Collider Video and that's how that all went. 
So yes, while six months ago in February of 2016, I did leave, that was really the first time I ever truly was able to leave because, you know, I, we were now at Collider and I knew that everything was safe and secure now. I knew that if I left Collider now, Collider wasn't going to, Complex wasn't going to pull the plug on Collider video. Collider wasn't going to do what AMC was going to do, which was just pull the plug on the whole operation. I knew that everything was safe and secure. We had great leadership in place. Dennis was there. Mark and Christian, I one of the last things I did before I quit was secure, work with Mark and Christian to help them secure new deals. Uh, we secured new deals to bring the Schmozno show under the Collider umbrella. We saw, we you know executed the deals to launch the movie trivia show. I had everything in place, so it was safe and secure. And now, finally, back in February, I was in a place that I could safely, after running this thing for like six or seven years, I was finally in a place that I could leave. And pursue these other projects that I had always had to say no to. And, you know, one of those projects is Film HQ. I mean, I have to pinch myself every week that I get to work with a company like Lionsgate and a company like Comic-Con uh, on the Comic-Con HQ network to run this Film HQ show. And I couldn't be happier with it. And the networks couldn't be happier with it. We are the number one show on the network, at least the number one original programming show. Uh, we're super excited. We're working with people like Nathan Fillion and Mark Hamill, and it's like everything's going great. Then there are other opportunities that I had that I'm not allowed to talk about, but there's other opportunities that I'm able to be involved in now too that I just could never have done while still trying to run Collider Video. So when people ask me the question, why do you keep coming and going, keep coming and going? The real answer is I only ever really left once. The first time I tried to leave, but I was forced to bring it over with me. This time I was able to leave and I'm able to sort of come back because I'm only doing movie talk. I'm not running all of Collider Video anymore. I'm only doing movie talk. And that is a much smaller time commitment than trying to run all of Collider Video. And fortunately, we have a great guy like Dennis Zen in place to run the rest of Collider Video. And he and I are working very closely together as we have for the last seven or eight years. So anyway, I hope that answers your question about um, how can I come and go, come and go, come and go. Bottom line is I've only ever left once. I tried to leave once before. That got nixed on me because of things outside of my control. The only thing I could do to save movie talk and save everybody's gigs was to bring it all over with me to Collider, and it's worked out great for everybody. So anyway, that's that. Let's now move on to the next question. The next question comes to us from Chris Warden, and Chris Warden writes, What's up, John? I hope you and Anne had a great summer. Uh, is there any chance you can publicly debunk this rumor going around that Suicide Squad needs to make $800 million at the worldwide box office just to break even? I personally can't see any studio head greenlighting a film project that needs to make that much to break even at the risk. The, the risk is just too high. Thanks a lot, Chris. Well, some of you may have heard that story going around that uh, Warner Brothers needed Suicide Squad to make 800 million worldwide. Obviously, it's not going to make 800 million worldwide just to break even. That is bullshit. It's bullshit. Now, here's where that came from. 
The report comes from The Hollywood Reporter. And and I'm saying the story is bullshit, but I 100% believe The Hollywood Reporter when they say they were told this. I told Hollywood Reporter does not go around making up stories, okay? I totally believe The Hollywood Reporter when they say this is what they were told. But the devil is in the details. Listen to how they were told, okay? Hollywood Reporter is just reporting what they were told. So I don't think the Hollywood Reporter report is bullshit. I think what the Hollywood Reporter got told is bullshit, okay? So the story comes from a report in the Hollywood Reporter who, while at the Suicide Squad premiere, overheard an an unnamed anonymous quote-unquote executive, that can mean anything, saying, yeah, they need to make between 750 and 800 make to break even. If they get even close to that, they'll consider it a win. That was the report. That is what they were told. Some executive, which could mean some the juniorest of a junior vice president up to the CEO, it could have been any one of 75 people, said offhanded at an event. So it wasn't on record, wasn't with a spreadsheet in front of them says, blah, 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 has to do this. Understand this. The production budget on record of Suicide Squad is $175 million. Suicide Squad did not have the biggest marketing campaign in the world. We all know this. It just just didn't. So let's, for argument's sake, though, say it had a super huge marketing budget. Let's say... For just for shits and giggles, let's say it had a hundred and fifty million dollar marketing budget. It didn't, but let's say it did. Okay. So that means now between the production budget and the PE, you're looking at 100, uh, 175 plus 150. So you're looking at $325 million. Okay. Now, that does not mean that their break even point is $325 million. Because you got to remember that roughly speaking, each film is unique, but roughly speaking, just generally speaking, you'll be in the right ballpark. You got to guess that the theatrical take, that means the movie theaters themselves, keep about one third of the box office dollar. Okay. That roughly means if a movie makes 300 million at the box office, the studio really only gets 200 million of that. Because one third of that 300 million, in this case, $100 million, one third of that 300 million stays with the movie theaters because the movie theaters got to pay their bills too, right? The places, you know, the places we actually go to see the movies, they keep one third, roughly. So if we're saying that Suicide Squad had like an all in expenses of about $325 million, which is monstrously big. Then let's say, what what do we got to do here? Let's say if it was, um, let's just go ballparks, okay? So if the movie made $600 million at the box office, right? Roughly take away about one-third, that's $400 million. That's $400 million the studio's made on a $325 million expense thing. The notion that, so just at, at $600 million, at $600 million, Suicide Squad makes money. They don't just break even, they make money. You're probably looking at around 550, 560. 550, 560 is probably the ballpark you're realistically looking at 
for Suicide Squad to break even. That's that's probably the rough ballpark. A movie in order to for a movie to have to make 800 million just to break even would have needed like oh my gosh. Um like a 250 million dollar uh production budget with like 300 million dollars in, in advertising, no, it just, it makes no sense. And what Chris is saying in his letter is, why would a studio executive greenlight a movie that just has a break-even point at $800 million? They wouldn't. They absolutely wouldn't. Suicide Squad made money. Look, I am, I am somebody who liked Suicide Squad. I didn't love it. And I am one of those people that even though I liked it and I gave it a positive review, I totally see all the flaws in it. And I can totally understand why there are people who hated it. You'll never hear me argue with somebody who hated it. I'll, I'll, like somebody comes up to me and says, Hey, I hated that movie. I say, I get it. Why did you hate it? And they'll say, because of this, this, and this. I say, yeah, I can see your point. I said, for me, it worked, but I could totally see why it didn't work for you. I totally can. It, it should have been better. While I liked Suicide Squad, it should have been better. All right. But this notion that Suicide Squad needed $750, $800 million, it just doesn't factually make any sense whatsoever. Again, I totally believe The Hollywood Reporter that that's what they heard. I totally believe The Hollywood Reporter when they say that's what they heard and therefore they reported it. I have no qualms with The Hollywood Reporter on that. I just highly question the circumstances in which they heard it, I highly circumstances who it was they heard it from, and I highly question the formality under which the circumstances in which they heard it. Some unknown anonymous quote-unquote executive speaking off the cuff at a premiere, you know, that's, I'm sorry, that just doesn't hold up against all this other mountain of statistics and numbers that just say the idea of Suicide Squad needing to make $800 million is ludicrous. Uh, Suicide Squad made money. It made money. It made Warner Brothers did not lose a dime on Suicide Squad. Okay, they made money. Did they make a ton? No. They probably should have made more because the movie should have been better, uh, and they probably could have made it for less expensive than 175 million too. But the bottom line is, there. Uh, this movie's made about 675 million dollars worldwide. This was a profitable movie. All right, let's move on to the next question. And the next one comes from uh, John Michael Nobuchar. Uh, Nobuchar. I hope I'm getting your name right, John. Anyway, uh, John writes, what are your thoughts on people who say Star Wars The Force Awakens will receive the same backlash as The Phantom Menace over time? Personally, I think that's nonsense. Yeah, you know what, John? I, I've heard that too. I keep hearing people say that about about The Force Awakens that, oh, eventually the same thing's going to happen to The Force Awakens as happened to The Phantom Menace because eventually people turned on Phantom Menace. The same thing's going to happen to The Force Awakens. I completely disagree. Now, look, I am one of those, because it's Star Wars, ah, sigh, because it's Star Wars, I wanted The Phantom Menace to be good so badly. So badly did I need The Phantom Menace to be good that I walked in and I walked out going, yes, I loved it. And I think there's a part of me that always knew I didn't. But as I went back to the theater 17, 18, 19 times to see it over and over again, each time I saw the movie, the truth 
started to sink in more and more that this movie's not any good. I mean, to this, to the, till my dying day, I will defend the pod race scene. Aside from the stupid two-headed announcer, that was, oh my God, that was so bad. Anyway, aside from the stupid two-headed announcer during the pod race scene, I, I contend that the pod race scene is awesome. And I also contend that the lightsaber fight between uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and Darth Maul was awesome. I loved it. I even like CGI Yoda, um, even though there was a, a good number of practical Yoda effects in there too. But, you know, but the movie was bad. It just was bad. And ev- right from the second time I saw The Phantom Menace, I realized, oh, this isn't as good as I thought it was. But I still love it. And it probably took me a good three, four, five, six months to really embrace the fact that, okay, that wasn't any good. That really wasn't any good. It was, I was lying to myself. I was blinding myself. Now, cut me some slack. That was 18 years ago or 15 years ago, however however long it was. Uh, No, it was 18 years ago. Good grief. Time flies. That was 18 years ago. All right. But, you know, I'm old enough to remember that, to remember when that came out. And I'm sorry to the people who say the same thing is going to happen to The Force Awakens. It hasn't. It's been a very different experience. Like that backlash of The Phantom Menace, it was immediate. I wasn't one of the people who hated it immediately. But watch any of the documentaries about The Phantom Menace. The backlash on The Phantom Menace was immediate. It got worse as time progressed because it took some people like me to realize just how bad the movie was. But... That has not happened with The Force Awakens. And as a matter of fact, I've seen The Force Awakens seven or eight times now. And every time I watch it, I actually like it a little bit more. I I still have my problems with it. I still don't think it's as good as any of the original three, but it's certainly a mile better than any of the prequels. And I think it's a very good movie. I really like The Force Awakens. Um, I put it as my number four best Star Wars movie. Anyway. Um, and, and so I just see the trend being quite the opposite of what it was during The Phantom Menace. So, I mean, that's cool. We can all have our opinions and you can be of the opinion that you think everybody's going to suddenly turn on The Force Awakens. But as somebody who lived through The Phantom Menace coming out and I saw how the backlash to The Phantom Menace happened, it's just not the same thing. It's, it's, just, it's just unfolding very, very differently than it did for The Phantom Menace. Uh, and then, you know, last night being at, you know, the John Williams concert, you know, when he starts playing Ray's theme and some episode seven stuff and that whole place just goes bananas, that tells you something. And then whenever they brought up some imagery on the big screen from the prequels, you heard some people going, boo. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of, I might have been one of those people too, but that was funny. But I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. The, the fact is that this is unfolding very, very differently than the way the Phantom Menace does, than the way the Phantom Menace did. That doesn't mean people won't eventually backlash. I guess you can think that if you want, but your grounds for holding on to that theory are growing thinner and thinner with every passing day because it hasn't happened yet. I mean, there's certainly people out there who didn't like the who didn't like the Force Awakens, and that's fair. There's people out there who didn't like The Godfather. That's totally fair too. All film is subjective. That's the most awesome thing about movies is that we all get to see a little bit something different in every movie. That's great. Um, but this this prediction that on a whole people are going to turn against the, the Force Awakens, we, I just simply don't see it happening because I'm not seeing any of the same indicators that we saw it 
with the Phantom Menace. None of those are present with, uh, with this one here. All right. Thanks a lot for the question, John. And the next one comes from Yuhan Houth. And Yuhan Houth writes, just a quick one, John. What are some films that come to mind whenever somebody complains about lack of original content from Hollywood? It really annoys me whenever I hear people complain about this on message boards. Yeah, me too, Yuhan. I, whenever people, you always hear this. And I don't know if people makes, if, if it makes people think like they know something or they think it makes them look like they know something when they complain about, oh, Hollywood, Hollywood doesn't make original films anymore. It's like, do you think that makes you look smart when you say that? Because to me, it just makes you look like you don't know what you're talking about. Hollywood makes more, I've said this before, you've heard me say it. Hollywood today makes more original films than it ever has in its history. Now, it's also true to say that Hollywood makes more sequels, reboots, and remakes today than they ever have before in history. That is also true because... The overlying truth is today, Hollywood makes more movies, period, than it ever has before in its history. The film industry, not just Hollywood, but the film industry puts out more full-length, feature-length, and wide-release films than at any other time in history. So that means you're going to get more sequels, more reboots, more uh, remakes than ever before, but you're also getting more original films than we have ever before. So let's look, different people identify quote-unquote original films differently, but let's go with this as our um, as our barometer, okay? An original film is any film that is not a sequel, a reboot, or a remake. A movie can be based on a book and it's still an original because every movie starts with an idea. Whether that idea came from a writer writing a book or a writer writing a screenplay, every movie comes from a starting idea. The question is, is it an original film? In the, in the case that it was never put, this idea was not put to film before. This is the first time it's being brought to film. And we'll rule comic books out of it, okay? Just for, even though we shouldn't by our definition, let's rule comic books out of it. So is it true that Hollywood doesn't make original films anymore? That's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. Like three of the best movies this year. You know, we're just, they're in theaters right now, all right? You got Don't Breathe, which is awesome. You got Hell or High Water, which is probably one of the top five best movies of the year. And you've got Kubo and the Two Strings, which is not much doubt in my mind is the best animated film of the year. And probably one of the top 10 best movies of the year overall is Kubo and the Two Strings. These are all original films. What's the problem? The, the problem is that we get all these people. You've, you probably, if you follow me on social media, you've heard me say this on Facebook a few weeks ago. The problem is you get all these people complaining about there's no original films and then Hollywood puts out all these original films and they don't go see them. And yet these will be the same people that cry that Hollywood doesn't make original films. It's like Hollywood doesn't make original films. Um, Don't Breathe, Kubo and the Two Strings and Hell or High Water are all in movie theaters right now and they're doing badly at the box office because you're not going to see them. Uh, 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 Hollywood doesn't make original films. Shut up. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. As a matter of fact, if we go by <coughs> that whole idea, I was saying that, look, uh, an original film is any film that has gone from concept to the screen for the first time. It's not a sequel. It's not a remake. It's not a reboot. Okay. Let's look at the release schedule. Okay. Right now. Let's look at the release schedule. Opening of this week's 
This week, you got the Disappointments Room original. You got Sully. Based on a true story, never been put to film before. This is an original film. When the Bow Breaks, original. The Wildlife is original. The Blair Witch is a sequel, so that does not count. Bridget Jones' Baby, sequel. That doesn't count. Snowden, that's an original. Magnificent Seven, remake. Storks, original. Deepwater Horizon, original. Masterminds, original. Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, original. Birth of, origi- uh, Birth of a Nation is original. Friend Request is original. The Girl on the Train is original. Uh, middle School, The Worst Year of My Life is original. The Accountant is original. Max Steele, uh, based on t- that was also a cartoon, so we'll say that that one's not original, all right? The, but you're getting my, my drift. I just read through all the films opening up September, and the vast majority of them are original films, never been put to film before. So, yeah, I mean, the concept that Hollywood doesn't make original films is just something some people like to squawk without actually thinking about it. Uh, and I get it. It feels like. It feels feels like sometimes that Hollywood is just putting out sequels and reboots and remakes because those are the ones that catch our attention. I mean, when we see a trailer for Magnificent Seven, that catches our attention because we recognize Magnificent Seven, but we totally forget that during that, those trailers, there was also a trailer for Storks and there was also a trailer for Masterminds and there was also a trailer for Girl on the Train and there was also a trailer for Kubo and the Two Strings. But we remember the Magnificent Seven one and we walk out going, oh my gosh, Hollywood's doing nothing but remakes. No, that's not true. That's not true. If, if you just stop and think about it for a second, it's not true. I'm not debating that it feels like that sometimes. Sure it does. I get it. It feels like that sometimes. But sometimes you got to take what it feels like, put that aside and actually sit down and look at the numbers and look at the facts. And the facts tell us beyond a shadow of a doubt that the majority of films being made today are still original films. So there you go. And we can't get mad at Hollywood for making more and more sequels, reboots and remakes when all these original films come out and we don't go support them. I mean, so we have no basis for complaint. Number one, because they do make lots of original films. Number two, we're not going out to support the original films they put out, even though some of these original films are awesome, amazingly awesome. Anyway, okay, sorry about that. I ranted enough on that one for now. Uh, Two more questions we're going to get through. This first one uh, comes from Ben Davis. And Ben Davis writes, my question is regarding Jared Leto's Joker. I'm a huge 32nd to Mars fan and a huge fan of Mr. Leto himself, so I was pretty excited when he was first cast. Now, after the movie release and the reception, I've had time to reflect upon his performance, and I gotta say, I loved it. He was in two of the best scenes in the entire movie, the club scene with Harley and the chemical scene. However, it seems to me his performance has kind of a split reception, with some liking it and some hating it. Do you think this will hurt us, the possibility of us seeing him in another movie? Um, Thanks a lot for the question, Ben. Yeah, I got to say, I'm one of those people that I really liked Jared Leto's Joker. And look, no matter what, because we're coming off of Heath Ledger's Joker, the last time we saw the Joker on the big screen, um, (coughs) live action at any rate, it was Heath Ledger's Joker. Maybe the single greatest performance in any comic book movie ever. Not just of a villain, but maybe the best single comic book performance ever. So it's natural to know that no matter what Jared Leto did or whoever they cast as Joker, 
it was going to be a split reaction because some people are we're just going to compare it and it's natural. I've I've no qualms with people doing this. It's natural. A lot of people were just going to compare it to Heath Ledger's Joker, and I think that's unfair. Even though it's natural, it's a little unfair because this isn't that Joker. Just like Heath Ledger's Joker wasn't Jack Nicholson's Joker. Um, just like his Joker wasn't Mark Hamill's animated Joker. They're different characters. They're different interpretations and different incarnations of the Joker. Every time we've had a Joker on the screen, it's been a unique and different incarnation and a unique and different interpretation. And Heath Ledger's Joker was no exception. Heath Ledger's Joker was very different from any other Joker we'd ever had. And therefore, I thought it was only appropriate that Jared Leto's Joker be very different from any Joker we've ever had. And this his was a very different Joker. It was a cross between Scarface and the original Cesar Romero Joker. Like very, very, very different. It was a very different kind of Joker. And <clears throat> for people who went into the movie looking for that Heath Ledger Joker, you're bound to be disappointed. Um, and I get that. And that's cool. For me personally, though, and this is just me personally, there's no right or wrong answer here. I'm just saying for me personally, I really appreciated the Joker he brought. I thought he was a terrifying, fascinating, scary, yet compelling character. And I was really into this toxic, codependent, unhealthy relationship between him and Harley Quinn, this obsession they each had with each other. Um, based on the most abusive and unhealthy grounds, I was fascinating by this. From, from a storytelling point of view, I was fascinated by it. And I thought it really worked for me. But I get why other people didn't cue into it. I, I do. I totally get it. And you get no argument from me. But all I can say, man, is that for me it worked. Whether or not we see Jared Leto back as the Joker again, I think it's a coin toss. At this point, I really do. I, I think it's a coin toss. I do believe this, though, that if Jared Leto doesn't come back to do Joker, they're going to get an actor to give us the same Joker. I mean, they're not rebooting Joker. We've got the DC Cinematic Universe now, and that's the Joker that's in it. So if they go out to get a new actor for it, that actor will be this Joker. They're not going to give us a brand new Joker. It's going to be the same Joker just played by a different actor. So that's kind of how I see it unfolding. All right. <clears throat> Last question of the day comes to us from Scott Woodridge, who writes, uh, Hey, John, love listening to you talk everything about movies. This summer was definitely a little disappointing for movies. My question is, even though we had a below average summer, do you think we are in store for an amazingly strong fall? It seems like with Telluride and the Venice Film Festival, movies like Hacksaw Ridge, Loving the Arrival, and La La Land are all getting lots of buzz. I feel like maybe more than previous years. Well, <clears throat> thanks a lot for the question, Scott. First of all, you know, I, I'm hearing everybody say that this was a terrible movie for summer for movies. This was a terrible summer for movies. And I got to say, I don't agree. I don't think it was as good as it could have been. But listen to this. The understanding that now the summer movie season starts in May. That's just that's just when it does. The summer summer doesn't start in May, but the summer movie season starts in May now, okay? And if you go down the list, we've had Finding Dory, which I think was a really solid film. Captain America Civil War, which right now is kind of tied for me as my favorite film of the year. 
Secret Life of Pets was real good. I like Suicide Squad. Uh, Jason Bourne was kind of a yawn. X-Men Apocalypse was underwhelming. Star Trek Beyond, I thought was really good. Central Intelligence, I thought was really funny. I thought The Legend of Tarzan was better than a lot of people make it out to be. I thought Bad Moms was was much better than I thought it would be. Um, <coughs> Conjuring 2 was great. Um... Pete's Dragon was great. Lights Out was great. Don't Breathe was great. I thought the BFG was really good. So, I mean, there have been a lot of good movies. Yes, we also got some Independence Day resurgences. Uh, yeah, that was that was a big bust. Um, Ghostbusters. Well, I like Ghostbusters. It was a huge bomb. X-Men Apocalypse, like I said, was underwhelming. Suicide Squad got really mixed reviews. So, yeah, there were some definite down points, but... I think a lot of people are just focusing on those big ticket down points and missing the fact that we've got a Kubo and two strings, hell or high water. Uh, like I said, Central Intelligence, Conjuring 2, Finding Dory, Captain America, uh, Star Trek Beyond. There, I mean, seriously, there have been some wonderful, wonderful movie experiences this summer. Some really good ones. Just not as high profile. So, I mean, I agree with you when you bring up uh, like the movies coming up this fall, you got like La La Land and Hacksaw Ridge, The Arrival. These all look great. I'm excited. Once you get into October, November, December, now you're getting into this Oscar season. So you can anticipate to see some really great high caliber movies coming out. But you know what? To be honest, when I sit down and think about it, this summer to me wasn't all that bad. It wasn't as good as it could have been. Absolutely. I do wish... Um, Ghostbusters had made a bigger splash than it did. I do wish X-Men Apocalypse had been better than it was. I do wish Suicide Squad was better than it was. Even though I liked it, I do wish it was better. All that's true. But there were a lot of really good movies, and I just think they're not the big ticket movies, so we're kind of forgetting about them. But overall, I think it was a pretty damn decent – it was a damn decent movie for Summers. It certainly wasn't the worst in my record. I can think of some worse ones. But anyway – That'll do it for me, guys, for this installment of the John Campy Podcast. Thanks a lot for joining me. Don't forget, uh, you can follow me on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. I'm especially active on uh, Facebook and Twitter, but I I am using uh, Instagram a little bit more. And you can find me on all those channels simply at John Campia. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Um, And um, yeah, that'll do it for me, guys. So I will be back starting tomorrow. That's Tuesday on Movie Talk. I'm really excited about it. And then don't forget, also find me on Comic-Con HQ every Saturday morning with what I think is the best movie show in the freaking world, Film HQ. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased. Uh, Film HQ every Saturday morning on Comic-Con HQ. So that'll do it for me, guys. Thanks a lot for joining me. My name is John Campion. Until next time, bye-bye. At American University, we don't just hope for change. We create it. We don't just dream of a better world. We make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout D.C. to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool.